0: So we're at the end of the second day of our little retreat. How are things going for you? Are there questions that arise in practice about the themes? I have a question. Yes.
1: So the Buddha taught about the Viharas to dwell one quarter in each one. Yeah. But it seems like Medita gets really short shrift. Like teachers that I've heard talk about the Brahma Viharas tend to concentrate on meta and on compassion and on equanimity more so. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, if that's a thing that's sort of um, exclusive to to Vipassana in the U.S. or what that's about. Because it really seems like there's not a lot even written about mudita compared to some of the
0: other Brahma Viharas. Um, it is a Western phenomenon. I think in Asia, that when the Brahma Viharas are taught, they're taught metta mudita, metta karuna mudita upeka. They're taught all four. So I think it is. Um, you can't hear me? No. Nope. Thank you. um i haven 't lived in the East, but when i 've spoken to people who have lived in the East, who do live in the East, who teach in the east there that 's what they 're saying is is that when they talk about the Brahma Baharas they talk about all four of them so I think um, the reason why it 's i mean my guess, my imagination of the reason why it 's short shrift here in in the states is because meta Karuna and Upeka are obviously in need.
1: <laughs>
0: but the reality is with Mudita, in order to actually practice Mudita, you know, you need to put down your own self-interest, your self-needs. You need to put down the kind of whole uh, negative emotional world that's flowing through you. In order to connect up with the joy of somebody else's joy. So it actually is a sophisticated practice. Mm-hmm. And to manage it, then is, it brings a lot of, of well being. So it's an important practice. Yeah. And, uh. I mean, it's an interesting thing just to contemplate, like determining mudita as a day where one goes through the day and tries to bring one's attention to the joy in other people's joy. You know? i was i was i what did I tell you when I was here last time about the the there was a monk who um had a very traumatic experience he went and um he his father had committed suicide and he'd found his father, okay so every time he thought of his father, his whole system went into shock did i did i did I share that yeah. And then, and then what he decided to do, because, you know, he'd think about his dad and his whole system would go into a trauma shock response, is that he decided that he was going to um, deliberately think of ways to bring joy to people and set it up so that whenever he did do that, he could be around when they had discovered that he had done it for them. And when he watched their faces kind of light up he would say, that's for you, Dad. Okay. So it was a way of, it's actually very skillful. I mean, it's not the end of the story, and there's usually quite a lot of shock and trauma and anger and rage still that needs to get navigated through. But what he was doing was he was replacing the shock and trauma response with a joy response. And then it took a month or two of him doing this at every moment that he could, to transfer a a trauma response into something where his whole being would light up with joy. You know, so he'd think of his dad and then all that he would feel is the joy of everyone else's reaction when he would do something to help them and then transfer the merit towards them. So, you know, there are many people in our society who suffer from uh, difficult Emotions, depression, and uh, low self-esteem, and I mean these are difficult things to work with. And yet, working with joy in this kind of a way, where we're deliberately um, bringing joy to other people, and and then allowing that to suffuse our own sense of well-being, is a is a skillful strategy.
1: Yes. Um, Yesterday, um, a question came up about loving kindness in the context of larger global issues, and um, this question isn't about that. But you had said that um, part of loving kindness was that when you felt like raging around somebody or getting angry with somebody, don't do that. And my question about that is just a really personal one, in that you know I kind of grew up in a family where you weren't (laughs) allowed to reason when people are getting angry. So I ended up just bottling it all up inside. And so what do you do, you know, when you make the decision not to get angry about it, then what do you do to make sure that you're not taking it out of yourself or holding it in or whatever? Well, that's been my life
0: strategy for the last, I don't know how many years, is, is I, you know, I'm a suppressive anger type. And so, you know, I had to, I had to come up with very um, specific permission strategies to allow myself to tolerate feeling angry. Because I would suppress it before I even knew I was angry, okay? I mean, I had it really under wraps. (laughs) And so when I started to realize how destructive that was, that that was as destructive as it was dumping it on other people, then I needed to find another way. And so I needed to come up with ways to allow myself to tolerate the experience of anger without dumping it on people and without suppressing it. And then there was a period of time when I did a lot, you know, cathartic practices. And I remember the first time I did this, I was terrified. Okay? Absolutely terrified. I was in Switzerland. It was in the middle of the winter retreat. It was 15 degrees below zero centigrade. And I went out with my incense sticks. And I went out with candles. And I I made a protective circle and I said, may this be for the benefit of all beings. And what I did was I took some rocks and I said some swear words and I threw them, you know, really scary. (laughs) (laughs) And I was petrified because there was something so scary for me to uh, tolerate feeling anger in my body and expressing it, even though I had set it up so that nobody would get hurt. Just to even do something like that was really pushing my comfort zones. So then I could feel what it felt like to allow anger and to express it in a way where no one was getting hurt and it wasn't actually getting jammed into my system. Okay, And then slowly, I mean, I'm still I'm not great at it, I'm better at it, but I'm not great at it, allowing the experience of anger to arise in awareness and tolerate that. Okay. Not raging at somebody is means not dumping your anger on them but it doesn't mean that one is not allowed to feel anger. Yeah. So one of the things that we need to learn to develop is is the way to interpret whatever it is we're hearing in terms of our specific kind of conditioning. Okay? So suppressive types like myself around anger need permission. Expressive types are people who tend to dump or to rip or to let go or, you know, you know. They need to, they need to hold. They need to contain. Okay? So, you know, our conditioning is different and it'll be different around different things. Yeah? But what's important is neither to suppress nor to dump. And so, you know, if a person is feeling raging, well, if a person is feeling raging, then obviously they're not having a problem feeling rage. Yeah. So that's why that instruction in that situation was in that way. Yeah. But if you come to me and say, listen, you know, I find it really impossible just to even feel angry, then my instruction would be completely different. I'd have you out there with the rocks. (laughs) Punch and water. Go off with your car, roll up the windows and say some of those big, bad, naughty words, you know, (laughs) as loud and as important and as powerfully as you can, because one needs to kind of let it, allow it through our body systems to get a feeling of what that feels like and that nobody, nobody got hurt. Nobody died. You're okay. It's all right. You can, you can actually survive the experience of expressing anger and not die. I think that's why I was so terrified, you know.
1: That doesn't sound like a Buddhist practice to me, though? That well... Like, like in the 70s or ish, or whatever that was.
0: I think, you know, we have all kinds of ideas about what Buddhist practice is, and some of them are right, and some of them are not right. Buddhist practice is about approaching suffering, understanding it, and releasing it, Okay. And it's true in terms of meditation practice. Meditation practice is not psychological practice, okay? It doesn't enter into the territory and, 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 uh, and, uh, interact with it, okay? On some levels, it observes it, alright? But what I found in my life is, is that, you know, I was absolutely committed Buddhist practitioner, and I was still miserable as sin. <laughs> what i realized that there was this huge area of psychological work that wasn't happening because of my dedicated buddhist practice and the, the result of that was is there was an enormous amount of suffering so my bottom line is i'm interested in understanding suffering and the end of suffering and i don't care all right I don't care if it's psychological or if it's gender, or if it's sociological or if it's political. I don't care. What I'm interested in is touching it and meeting it and understanding it and releasing it. And what I have found is, is that some of these different kinds of suffering requires different kinds of antidotes. So the transpersonal ending of suffering, which is what meditation is brilliant for, is almost completely ineffectual for some of these other kinds of suffering. Right, and so you know what happens like for somebody in my situation where our whole life my whole life is dedicated to the practice you know there's this hope if I just practice harder if I just do it harder if I just am more dedicated and do it more if I sit more if I spend more time alone on my cushion then I will find the answer to all these other forms of suffering and it doesn't work So, I'm a realist, in addition to being a drama queen. (laughs) And so for me, it's like, you know, I've spent 20 years of my life working as hard as I can in a practice with as much dedication as I can muster. And it is not giving me the skills that I need to work with some of the stuff that I have to work with. So I go and find the resources that can help me. You know, one of the things that we're in the middle of right now is a war. I don't know if you've noticed. (laughs) But there's a gender war going on, okay? And, you know, for 2,500 years, we have had the most incredible Dhamma Vinaya that you can imagine, okay? And we have enlightened masters. But that is not enough to illuminate cultural biases and prejudice that get passed on according to cultural biases through generations. It doesn't see it, it doesn't address it, and it doesn't eradicate it. Well, enough is enough. So for me, I can see that this kind of suffering is actually a suffering that is not supportive of awakening. And so I feel very clear and committed. It's enough. It's time to move out of that. How? I'm not quite sure yet how, but I'm clear that we've got to go that way. Yeah. And that's true with all kinds of suffering. You know, there's a lot of people who come to the monastery who've got major issues around sexual orientation, you know. So celibacy is the solution. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It's like, no, you know, sexual orientation needs to be sorted out and whether you choose to be celibate or not is a separate topic, but you have to feel comfortable with who you are and how your energies flow. You know? So.
1: To me on the other side of that is when do you So you've seen sexism, would you take action? You know, I'm struggling with this issue with my brother, um, constantly hoping that I will come to God. And there's a way in which I just want to say, that's, enough. you know, so that it's not with hate, but there is a way in which I feel it would be helpful for me to just say, that's enough. I don't want to hear that.
0: So for me, you know, I had this view that if I meditated hard enough, I would become enlightened and that would solve all my problems. And so the conviction was that if one just surrenders sufficiently to the meditation and to the form, that that will be the panacea that is going to solve everything, all right? When I knew in my bone marrow that it wasn't because I wasn't meditating correctly and it wasn't because I wasn't doing it hard enough, but there were other things that needed to be attended to that required another approach, then that gave me the courage to begin to look and question the things that were taboo to question. And with that came the confidence to say, this is enough. But until I doubted, until I thought that if I only surrender enough, then I didn't have the confidence to say that's enough because I thought that there was something wrong with the level of my practice and understanding. And once I got it, that that's not where the problem was, Mm -hmm. then the courage and the strength came. And it wasn't nasty, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but it was ferocious. This is enough. Mm
1: Yes. yes. I'm going to the Buddhist practice, but is there a process for just feeling whatever it is? Um, I call them stuffed thought forms in my body that I haven't been able to release, you know, like anger or fear. And just the regular um, things we've been doing will that release.
0: So there's the yes answer and then there's the no answer so the yes answer is yes but this actually does work and it actually is very helpful and a lot of people find a lot of relief and a lot of liberation that comes from just doing the practice the no answer is that there's some aspects of our own mind-body psychology which is kind of um uh resistant to attention and awareness and those kind of places often need other support in addition to meditation practice. And for me, the, the sign of a mature practitioner is somebody who's able to recognize that. So they use meditation in the ways that support them, and they see the limitations of it and the places in their own mind-body system that it's not sufficient, and then they get appropriate support that addresses the insufficiency.
1: For saying that, it, I guess that's what you were
0: saying before that. But you kind of rephrased it
1: for my consciousness
0: to get Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. So is that enough for a day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to just close. Um, Which which chants did I pass out? Namotasa, the sharing of blessings. Let's do the sharing of blessings chant. So one word just before we, we do the sharing of blessings chant often is the case that people think that the amount of blessings that they have is dependent on the content of their experience. Okay? So if you're feeling... Uh, light or energetic, if you're feeling very loving, if you're feeling very uh, resourced, then you have a lot of blessings. But in a way, it's actually not the right way of looking at it. Because the content of our experience is not as significant as the aspiration to awaken. And so, you know, some people might have had a hard day today. You know, they might have felt frustrated or low or aggravated irritated and it's not helpful to judge the amount of blessings we have by the content of what it is that we're experiencing it is rare in this world that people have the aspiration to awaken that they make time to sit quietly to contemplate and to be present with what's arising even if what's arising is unpleasant yeah So to have access to teachings and to have community, to have silence, to have support, to have an opportunity to practice is a phenomenal blessing. So touch that when we're doing this chant rather than the content of the kind of things that were arising during the day.
1: Thank you for listening.